Welcome to Intriguing Interviews, where fascinating people share captivating stories. I'm Chad Elliott, your tour guide on this audio hitchhiking journey. Today, I interview Sarah Simmons. Sarah will tell us how she went from writing music for soap operas to rescuing children who have been forced into sex slavery. Now, I know some people will say, I don't want to hear about that. But stick around. Sarah won't go too far into the horrors of human trafficking. Instead, she focuses on the hopeful aspects of her work and how she helps young girls recover and lead normal lives. Along the way, you'll also learn useful tips that can help you recover from your own traumas and challenges so you can thrive in your own life. Plus, you'll hear some fascinating stories, discover interesting facts, and maybe even walk away a better person. So let's gear up for a trip that will take us all the way from a Hollywood soundstage to the slums of Calcutta, as we learn from the founder of the Her Future Coalition, Sarah Simmons. First, I'm curious, what was your... You know, what was sort of your life story, your life like before you got involved in all of this? So before I started doing this work, I had a really different kind of life. Um, I was a songwriter for film and TV. And really, it was primarily TV and not film. And in fact, it was primarily um, soap operas. And my music, <laughs> yeah, I know, tended to be used for the love and death scenes of soap operas. <laughs> I like that it's like, in particular, the love and death scenes. <laughs> Yeah, it was that kind of music. Um, and, you know, I guess kind of like moody and, you know, emotional. You know, those scenes when people are like trying on hats and falling in love. That was that was me. That was my Which music. Which I feel like is all of the scenes in a soap opera. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's you're either dying or you're falling in love or you're realizing that your twin is alive after, you know. 20 years. Yeah, yeah. And that they're also like a cyborg or something. Um, it depends on which soap opera you're on. Um, so I'm curious, do you have any, like, do you have any fun stories from when you were in the industry? Oh my gosh. I have, I have a lot of stories. I don't know how, you know, how fun they would be, but, um, <laughs> before yeah, I did the, <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to think of one, but like before I did the writing for film and TV, I was, um, in a band and we toured around the country and, you know, had a, had a tremendous amount of wonderful adventures. Um, but the thing was about it, like we, you never knew when you showed up in a town, whether it'd be, you know, hundred people there or 20 people at the club, mm -hmm. you, not something we had a lot of control over because we were you know, touring around all, all of the different States. And mostly it was really awesome. But this one time we showed up at this club in Los Angeles and, um, it was Luna Park, and I don't know why, if it was, you know, to do with the, you know, the promotion or just our music wasn't their cup of tea in that area, but we got there and no one was there. Like, not, you know, not two or three people, no one, zero. Zero. Um, a zero, not wow. one of God's children was in that audience. Like, oh. <laughs> and I'm just hoping they're going to be like, you know what? Hey, it happens, no worries, and, you know, no harm, no foul. Just, you know, don't play tonight. We'll rebook for another time. And they were like, no, please oh. go ahead and play. And I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> cannot be serious. So I was like, okay, okay. Um, and, you know, you just, I didn't realize until that night, like, how much the interaction with the audience is part of the experience of being a live musician. And huh. so there was, you know, this, um, this like bartender and I think a waitress and, and, you know, they were just doing their best, but it was, it was just like the most <laughs> hilariously <laughs> awkward night of my life. And I was like, okay, you know, it's just, we just play the whole set. And, um, did the bartender and waitress like sit down to listen or did they kind of go about their business? No, they were definitely just going about their business. And I think they were also probably bummed because like they're, they're, you know, livelihood depends oh, yeah. on customers as well but you know they kind of like gamely clapped after the songs and you know they kind of like <laughs> give a thumbs up here and there and i was just like oh this is <laughs> wow so that's awkward. awkward it was awkward but i think that one of those situations too where you're like you can either you know die inside a little bit more with each passing minute you know um and i thought maybe some <laughs> people, you know would wander in but no that that really never happened we played the whole set um of just to no one who's like, you can either do, you know, die inside a little bit, or you can just be like, you know, it's a rehearsal and, and have fun with it. <laughs> and I'd say, I'd say, you know, we did a little bit of both. 
I kind of veered wildly between like, this is, this is great. You know, what a great opportunity to develop as a person and as a human being and as a musician. And then like the other time, just like, please could this end? This is the worst. Uh, but yeah, there was a lot of that. And then, you know, I kind of got to the point in my uh, career where I, I wanted to start a family and have different types of experiences. So I started writing at that point for mm-hmm. film and TV. And that was mm-hmm. a wonderful um, phase um, of my, of my career and of my life. Um, and I was, feeling like I got this song placed into a movie finally and it was a feature film and the feature film was going to be at Tribeca Film Festival so I thought this is a great opportunity and I'm going to go down and my life's going to change it was called Nola it was kind of a romantic comedy starring Emmy Rossum who you know later went on to be a star of Shameless and she was actually singing me my song in the opening credits which is know pretty good placement because you you could actually see her lips moving she played a musician she did a gorgeous job um and it you was, must have been um, very excited oh my gosh i was like this is it i made it because i've been doing these soaps which is really fun and, and good money but i really my dream was you know to be writing for for feature films and you know i got one and it felt like a really great opportunity and i went down to tribeca film festival to see it there was parties and you know lots of celebrations and very exciting for me um and at the same film festival i had a free ticket to see any film i wanted any films I wanted, as many as I wanted, but there was a very limited time because, you know, I, I had kids at home, little little tiny ones, and um, there was a lot of events associated with the film that my song was in, and so I was fo- focusing on that. Didn't have a lot of time to see the other films, which I love. You know, I love independent films, um, and it turned out in the afternoon that I finally had a window. The on- the only film available was this, you know, what I assumed would be a, like tragic documentary about the sex trafficking of young girls from Nepal to India. And I actually thought, you know, I'm definitely not going to go see that film. I'm here to celebrate. I've you know, got a lot going on in my own life and I won't be able to do anything about it. It's just going to be so sad. I don't want to do it. And I, you know, really had kind of a, a negative attitude about it. Um, but it really was the only, only song in that, I mean, the only film that I could possibly see in my time frame. Um, mm-hmm. And here I had this free ticket, didn't, you know, didn't want to be lame and not see anything. And so out of really just, you know, you were kind of forced to see it almost. I was forced to see it. I was, I, it was the only, you know, it was the only option. And I went and I'm so glad I did. Were there, were there many other people there or had there, had there been a lot of, was it sort of empty? What had like a lot of other people kind of felt the same way and it was sort of a emptyish theater or had, was it pretty packed as well? I mean, sadly for me, because it proves that I really am a bad person, there was, <laughs> it was like, <laughs> it was packed with all these like socially you. conscious, awesome people who didn't, you know, I, I assume didn't have like an inner, you know, like a lengthy inner dialogue and argument with themselves about before going, they were just there. And, you know, it was actually kind of humbling. I'm like, okay, I, you know, I, I need to get it together. I need to be here. Um, and then the film started and it was just, it was incredible. It was devastating. Um, it was shocking. This issue of human trafficking wasn't known at that time. The words weren't even really in, in the vocabulary. I had no idea this was going on. And I was devastated by these stories of these very young girls who, you know. Yeah, especially when you had young children at the same time. Absolutely. It was it was absolutely devastating. But thankfully, it was a film that also, um, it's called The Day My God Died. And it had a lot of it's a you know dark title for sure, but it, it had a lot of hope in it as well um, of people who girls who'd come out of this and then became activists and they were you know going out into the villages to raise awareness and prevent this happening or they were even going back into the brothels where they were enslaved and and helping to do raids and helping to build trust so that other girls would come out. Um, they were working the borders and stopping the cars and you know after everything they'd experienced, having been abused so horribly and also um, being a lot of cases rejected by their families and blame what was done to that for what was done. Um, they still had this courage. So I thought, you know what, if they're doing it, there's gotta be something I can do to contribute. And so my life completely changed, but just not in the way I expected. Yeah. Did you, did you have kind of a catharsis and say like, I'm going to get out of writing music and go totally into this? Or did you just want to get involved a little bit? Like what was your mindset at the end of the movie? Well, it was definitely, um, a catharsis of saying, I, I cannot live in this world with this going on and not do something about it. So I'm going to devote myself to working on it um, in whatever way that I can find. And I wasn't sure initially if my music career would continue to be part of my life um, and do both. Um, But I did meet my husband for lunch 
that day. He was in New York also for business. And I said, I've just seen a movie that's going to change my life. And he just said, cool. Wow. Great. But of course, <laughs> he, he didn't know then that it was going to change his life or he might have had a little bit more hesitation <laughs> on that answer. But uh, at the time, he was like, that's great. Go for it. He was very, very supportive. And, um, and so that's I great. read, you, have, you know. Sounds like you have a nice husband. I have a super nice husband. So uh, yeah, I, I felt like, how am I going to do this, right? Like, because I'm this, this soap opera writer. I live on Cape Cod. I've got these little babies. And I don't really know very much about this issue. And I've not worked internationally. Yeah, it's like it's a very uh, far starting point to like to go. Okay, okay, I'm going to wind up, you know, helping all these people over in in India and Calcutta and all these places. So, how did you how did you get started? Well, my my philosophy was, and it still is, start by starting. So I feel like you know, if, uh-huh. you, if you take a step onto this path, it'll become clear what the next steps should be. Um, and if you stand there, you know, at the foot of the path being like, where do I go? I don't know what to do. Where should I start? You know, you're just not going to get anything accomplished. You're never going to learn what you need to learn um, in order to start. So um, I just, and I reached out to the groups featured in that exact film and said, "Um, how can I help you? It was actually kind of funny because you know, like you meet someone from Sweden or some other country and you're like, Oh, I know someone from Sweden. Do you know Lars or whatever? Um, And you know, of course they don't. (laughs) Similarly, um, you know, people from Nepal, when I reached out to this group in Nepal, they were like, Oh, we actually have some volunteers helping us. Um, Do you live anywhere near Boston? I did. I lived in Cape Cod. I'm like, but probably from their perspective, you know, they're not like even imagining just, how unlikely that was in the whole of yeah. the United States um, that it was really 45 minutes from my house. So I was like, okay, that is a great sign. Um, these yeah. people are already helping this organization They're right in my town. And they were kind enough to you know welcome me in to, to help them in the helping. And um, I had volunteered with them for a year and learned so much from them and learned about the issue. And every night I was also researching it online and reading as many books as I can just trying to trying to understand it better and uh, the, the issue, you know, as well as that organization. And then after a year, um, those volunteers in Boston said, Hey, we're going to, we're going to Nepal. We're going to go spend time at the shelter. Uh, would you like to come? And I'm like, wow, could I, could I do that? I'm like, yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. So I um, got some babysitting and I, and I went over for 11 days <laughs> and, I like this. Like I, I got some babysitting and then I went to Nepal. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my husband again was like completely supportive and my aunt came and, you know, watched my kids helped and I was able to go. Um, and that was just, again, life changing, you know, actually meeting these survivors and, and getting to know them and seeing their courage firsthand. And also the, you know, people that were working there, we went up into the villages and they were doing an awareness campaign when they did like, street theater and went door to door. And I just saw, I saw like, wow, these, the bravery, you know, when there's so much stigma around this issue for them to just go door to door in this village and share, you know, their experiences to prevent it from happening was very, very humbling and incredible. But the most powerful moment was actually after I'd been there a few days, a mother came to the shelter um, whose daughter had gone missing. And she came from a very remote village. I think she'd been traveling for days. She was carrying this, you know, Polaroid, this like dog-eared Polaroid of her daughter who'd been missing for 11 days and just looking in her face and, you know, understanding that, you know, she might most likely wouldn't see her daughter again, had been trafficked and would not return, you know, 20 to 25 girls a day go over that border and and most of them never return. And so that was just devastating and and, and really compelling moment to keep energizing me to move forward. Um, And also on that trip, I, I had the opportunity to interview the director of that organization called Mighty Nepal. And I asked her, you know, what, what can I help with? Where, you know, where do you feel like everything's going great? And where do you feel like you could use more resources or support? And she said to work on economic empowerment and job opportunities for the older girls. Because when girls are rescued at a young age, in one way, they're luckier because you can, you know, they can go back to school and rejoin society that way. Yeah. Um, but for girls that are, you know, 16 and up, as many are when they're rescued. They've had no schooling. Yeah, they've had no schooling. Not everyone wants to go back to kindergarten, you know. Um, it's really hard to do. And especially when you're at that age where what your impulse is you want to be independent. And you want to start, you know, building your life. So to go backwards is just not possible for a lot of people or desirable. A lot of them had babies that they'd been 
um, encouraged or forced to have while they were trafficked. So for those those young women, um, they're really looking for vocational training and employment. So that's where we started. Um, and I started working on that. You're very simply at first, bought a bunch of products at the shelter that they were, you know, the survivors had been trained and were making. And I brought them back to my house at Cape Cod and I sold them at awareness parties in my community where you just go and, you know, um, put out the products. And, and I talked for a little bit and shared the story. And, you know, I dragged my kids along. They, I remember this one Christmas, the first Christmas, there was 17 of those in a row. I just wow. took my kids and the, you know, so many, <laughs> yeah, and these poor kids and they would kind of be in the other room eating brownies, watching TV. How old are kids at that point? They were like five and I mean, five and six. And I mean, I think they just, I loved it. It was like, go with mom, <laughs> go in the other room, watch, eat brownies. There were always so many brownies <laughs> and like cheese. And, um, <laughs> You know, eat, eat, eat junk food and watch TV while mom talks. And then, you know, they would come and help me sell the stuff at the end. It was really cute. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and yeah, we did that. And it just kind of took off in our, in our, in our community. And then from the, you know, kind of went beyond Cape Cod into the New, New England region. And then nationally, then we, you know, started having an online store. And just gradually over the years, it evolved. Um, we started to see an order for women to be successful and to remain free and kind of break free of the cycle the cycles of poverty and, you know, discrimination that made them vulnerable, um, that there were other pieces that needed to put in place. And, you know, education is primary among them, but also shelter. And so we started working on those issues as well, um, working very closely with local groups and kind of branching into India, um, where, you know, which continues to be a, a major focus for us, especially Calcutta. And, you know, learning from what was happening, really partnering closely, like I say, with, with local groups and learning from them. Yeah. So what are, what are some of the challenges that you encountered early on and that you had to figure out how to overcome? Oh my gosh. Wow. There are so many challenges and <laughs> continue to be so Uncountable. many challenges. Uncountable. Um, and I think, you know, initially like you come to an area and you're like, Hey, I want to help. You know, I, mean, I think, mm-hmm. um, for building, building those relationships with the local groups, building trust, finding the groups, you know, where there was really a good alignment of our values and, and skills and their, and their values and skills. And so, you know, finding like where it's not just one-sided thing, but everyone can contribute, you know, equally and, and building trust. Um, you know, and, and so you, you tend to work with uh, sort of organizations that are already set up over there and kind of assist them. Is that it? Well, it, initially that was, that was, you know, entirely it. And over the years, you know, we, we've hired our own staff and, and, and also developed our own uh, standalone programs, but we continue to do a, a lot of programs in partnership with local groups. It's just a, an important value for us because, you know, there's, I think that the community knows what the community needs and there's always amazing local people working on it. So rather than coming in with you know, ideas from outside, I think it's very important to look at what's already working and support that um, as the, you know, first thing. And then, and then gradually, you know, we started to start to see some areas where we could develop our own projects as well. Um, but again, always closely alongside what's happening locally. So what's an example of a project that you do? Uh, well, one of our projects um, that we do is we we have trained survivors as goldsmiths. And um, that's a job that's traditionally been done only by men in India. So, you know, it was quite original and, and something that wasn't the usual thing that people were training survivors to do. And we uh-huh. found that the girls loved it you know, being able to take a piece of metal and like bang it and, you know, using power tools and <laughs> yeah. women everywhere love power tools. Right. I mean, I think <laughs> we all love banging metal and making it into something cool. It's something we do. we do. It's, you know, it's very, I, I don't know, metaphoric, right. For like taking something that looks like nothing and making it something beautiful out of it. I think, it's, true. you know, the transformation, I guess, is, is exciting for each and every one of us and creating and, and, and being able to be creative is, is important for all of us, but particularly for people who've experienced a tremendous amount of trauma. Um, yeah. So, you know, that's been a successful program where we've been able to pay a really great wage and that wage has enabled women to not only get out of the shelter and support themselves and their families, but to be in a strong position in the family and community where they can reach even beyond that and become um, change agents for others you know, helping to rescue others or prevent trafficking within the family and community. What is one of, you know, a story of one of the girls you've worked with who you kind of rescued from 
her situation? Like, what is the story of how she got into it? And then, uh, like how you got her out of it and then the process of, of healing that, that you helped her through so she could become independent. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I'll tell you a story. One of the things that we actually don't do and that we partner with local groups for is rescue. Um, there's just some amazing groups that do those raids and those, Mm. you know, for a variety of reasons, kind of need to be done by, by local people. Um, yeah, it's probably need, dangerous, isn't it? It can be dangerous. And, and I think you, uh, there's sort of an undercover piece of it, which is generally done by local men. Um, uh, where they go into the you know brothel and build the trust so that when the raid happens, the girls don't just all run because they've been, you know, brainwashed to think anyone who's coming to help is only, it's only going to be worse. You know, they're going to traffic you and kill you. And it's been so much betrayal and, of trust in their lives. So um, yeah. we partner with, with local groups that do that. Um, including one awesome group called Rescue Foundation, which rescues about 500 girls a year. And where we come in is sort of at the point of rescue and support the next step of recovery, whether it's shelter, education, employment, vocational training, or all of those things. Um, So one case is this one girl, I'll call her Priyanka, and it's not a real name. Um, She grew up uh, on the streets of Calcutta. Family was you know, pavement dwellers, they didn't even have, you know, any kind of a dwelling. They just lived under a tarp on the street and were very, very poor. Um, and so when she's about 10, her parents sent her to the train station to work, um, bagging and sweeping trains, kind of like what you see in that movie, Slumdog Millionaire. And she uh-huh. was there for a couple of years and obviously a child in that situation, so, so, so vulnerable and was ultimately Yeah, traffic. it's amazing she lasted a couple of years there. It's incredible. Without, and, you know, yeah. I, I Eventually, though, um, she was trafficked and sent to a brothel in Mumbai, um, where she was for several years. Then um, she's very, like, very, very petite for an Indian girl, very small. And she had the opportunity um, to escape through this super tiny window in the bathroom. And incredibly and really courageously, she went went to the police station and brought the police back and they rescued three more girls. And the reason Which is that's dangerous so, because the yes. police are often in the coffer of the brothel, right? Absolutely. I mean, there, there, you know, so much complicity. And every week, you know, those the police would come to the brothel, you know, to either accept bribes or accept free services in exchange for their silence. Um, and they were absolutely not someone you can trust. But you know, she, I think, just felt like she had to try. And thankfully, the police that she found were good, and they. You know, came back to the shelter and they did a raid and right then and there rescued some more girls. So that was, you know, an incredible beginning to the story. And then she was at the shelter home um, run by our partner Rescue Foundation. And we were running a a training program at that shelter home in the jewelry. And she really, really took to it um, and really loved it. And some years later, um, it was time for her to be repatriated to her home state which is, you know, which is Bengal. And she was from the city of Calcutta, where, which is where our headquarters are. And so mm-hmm. um, we were like, okay, you know, we'd like to try to have her remain in our, in our family. And she wanted that too. And so we arranged for her to go to a shelter home where we were also working in Calcutta. She got back to Calcutta. She was really excited to see her family again. But when she went to see them, she learned that her father had died in the intervening years and they blamed her and said, he died looking for you. He died of a broken heart because of you. And they literally threw her out onto the street and later was revealed that her brother and sister had been involved in, in her being trafficked in some way, wow. maybe accepting money for it. So she was heartbroken. Um, but yeah. the circle of sisters, you know, in the program, the, the staff and the other girls just encircled her. You know, she got a lot of counseling. She, you know, it was like the ups and downs. It wasn't a perfectly smooth journey, but you know, she has, she has made a really strong recovery. She's one of our top artists in the program and, um, is having, you know, really great mental health. She's living independently. She's just moved into a new place. It's really adorable. She's taking dance classes and we're just really proud of her and overcoming what's kind of like the worst scenario for anyone, both the abuse and and, and shame that they experience in trafficking, but then also the rejection and blame. Yeah, that's one of the amazing things to me. Like I, so uh, I live in Seattle and a little ways away is the town of Port Townsend, which uh, used, you know, back in like the late 1900s uh, or late 1800s had like a lot of brothels and stuff. And we were on the sort of tour of the city with a tour guide. And he was telling the story of um, this one 
girl who was kidnapped from Oregon when she was 12 and like brought to the one of the brothels up there. And she when she was like 17, she managed to get a letter sent to her father down in Oregon. And he literally walked from Oregon up to the the top of Washington to see her. But then when he found she was in a brothel, he like said she disgraced the family and he just left her there. And, and she was actually killed shortly afterwards. And I think it's just amazing the way the families will blame these these kids who like are obviously defenseless. Like it doesn't even it doesn't even make sense. It really doesn't. And I think that and also like the society tends to blame the victim. And I think the girls, yeah. you know, when certainly in India, and I'm sure I'm sure it's the same in other places too, but like people will walk by and kind of just look at them scornfully or say mean things to them and they just get this this feeling of worthlessness that they're hearing from everywhere, you know, and I think a lot of girls feel like they have to stay because their parents sent them there. There's just such a deep sense of family responsibility and, you know, sort of obedience to the family. And so, you know, and then they're in a place where they don't speak the language and then passersby are so scornful of them. It's a natural belief. Well, I'm, you know, I might as well just stay here because well, where else would I go and what else would I do? So a big, you know, lately a big part of our work has been working in red light areas um, with resource centers that allow families to stay together. So rather than removing children whose mothers are in the sex trade, um, providing a safe space for them to be while their moms are working and then providing services to those moms. And then that becomes a safety net. Um, that means that girls don't have to be removed and sent to shelters, which they always used to be. And this allows, you know, the family to stay together and to put resources into both the children and their moms. Wow. I mean, you know, it's interesting. I feel like to to some degree that in order for this to uh, ever really change, and well, and, and you know, I've I've heard that the numbers are like that the that basically there are more sort of human slaves, trafficked humans than than there were during you know the days of slavery in the United States and everything back in the eighteen hundreds. Like it's it's a, a massive problem right now. So. Do you know? Do you know any of sort of the numbers of like what the scale is of all this? Well, according to the latest reports from the United Nations and Walk Free Foundation, they are estimating about there's about 40 million people living in slavery around the world, um, and they have in that that recent number have started to include child marriage as a form of slavery, which I think is important and great because it is um, yeah. obviously a form of slavery and a very very similar kind of uh, situation. So it is, it is a ma- problem on a massive scale. And I think even with those numbers, obviously it's, a, it's an underground and criminal enterprise. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're not going to get exact numbers, but, but I think we can all agree that one is too many and, and 40 million is sure. unfathomably too many. And it seems like it's uh, hard in a way it's harder to build awareness for this than many problems because it's just so disturbing. Like you think of, PETA, you know, which is like to help animals and they have like a huge following. They can get in the news all the time. It's really easy. But something like this, like you talked about with, with the movie, like they're uncomfortable even hearing the story about that. They, it's not the kind of thing where you, you know, like with, with something like a post PETA sends out about like cute little animals, like people will like share that a whole bunch, but this isn't the type of thing that people share. Have you, have you found it harder to gain basically traction and awareness because of those things? definitely i mean i feel like i've learned the hard way like when i start talking about it like at a cocktail party and people are like stepping back away from me like you see them visibly recoiling and i'm like oh dear i, sh- I shouldn't have said that um you know that was not appropriate and of course i should yeah, know actually i i experienced uh, i'll tell you i experienced that the other day so you know we're on the pa- in the pandemic but dating is not totally out and so i went on like this first date with someone and I you know I mentioned the podcast and I was like oh yeah I'm going to be inter- you know I'm going to be interviewing this woman who um basically helps young young girls who have been like human trafficked and stuff and I realized you know I was like oh that's not a good conversation topic but I I you know to me I think that's a really important thing but yeah it's it it would it's a conversation stopper isn't it I mean, I think it's a game killer. I think that's the term you're looking for in your case. <laughs> it, um, it definitely, yeah, I learned the hard way. And of course, I should have known better because I was very resistant and fearful about it myself. And I think, you know, so I think it's important in our storytelling around this, in our awareness raising around this to stay away from like, you know, sensationalism and and really, you know, shocking, you know, disturbing facts. Because I think that, 
that's going to, uh, you know, turn people away much. as much. Yeah. As, as much as it's going to draw people to, to care. I think it's really, you know, more important, at least for our, our philosophy is to stay on the hopeful side, emphasize the hopeful stories of transformation in the girls' lives. We don't, we don't ever talk about like the specific violence they experience, some of which is, you know, horrific. And, and, and yeah. I wish I didn't know about it. It's not, you know, it's not helpful. I think the important is to know these, these are young girls. They have tremendous potential. This terrible thing has happened, but it has not extinguished the incredible light within them. They are doing amazing things. We've got a girl in medical school. We've got, you know, oh, wow. hundreds of girls in, in, in high school and girls in college. And it's, they really are able to recover from this and they are able to move forward. And we need to, you know, work on those, on those hopeful stories and share those. And the other challenge I think in terms of raising awareness is like, we all know someone who's experienced breast cancer. So those, sure. those issues, you know, they do feel more personal, but most of us don't know a trafficking survivor. Mm-hmm. And most of us, you know, this hasn't intersected in our personal lives very much. So uh-huh. it can feel very distant, very distant. And, and, and it's the first thing maybe people would kind of forget about in a moment of crisis. So I think, again, we're also looking for ways to connect people to understand, you know, these, these girls and women are just like us. They've had this terrible thing happen. It's not who they are. You know, I, try, I always try to connect it like, like, like 19 year olds anywhere. Our girls want to get their first apartment and some pots and pans and their apartment actually looks just like it really does. Like I recently <laughs> with this girl just moved into her first place, you know, after out of the shelter home. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, this looks like my first place. You know, you had the pots and pans on the floor. <laughs> you've got the colorful bedspread, you know, the whole, yeah. you've got the, you know, you've got another bedspread that serves as a poster on the wall. Like, the whole thing. I'm like, this, we're, you know, those connections, like we, we're really, we all want the same things. We all want, we all want to walk freely. Right. We all want our freedoms. We all want to be able to be self-supporting and give back to others. And so I try to, you know, also connect people through those similarities between us um, and stay away from like sensationally sharing of the, you know, horrific, the horrific truth of what actually has happened to to our girls. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So what, so what about, uh, what about for the girls? So I I know that in your, your Ted talk, you mentioned basically, uh, you know, there are some misconceptions people have about the healing process. So like, for instance, the, a lot of people would, would be like, oh yeah, you should just have them talk about the, the abuse they went through a lot, but you found that that's n- not necessarily the most healing thing. I agree. I think it's not, you know, I think, um, it's a cultural thing uh, too. I think in America we have, we really do celebrate people who've overcome these terrible things. And, you know, even if it's uh, something pretty personal, like rape or, you know, sexual violence, you can, you know, you can share it and people, um, people will you know be very supportive. Like, wow, you got through that. That's amazing. That's a wonderful thing about America, but, um, in other cultures and particularly in Asia, um, if you were to get on, you know, go on TV and say, I, you know, I was trafficked and now I've gotten beyond it and I'm doing this, but your entire your only career option would then be as an activist speaking about trafficking. Like it would cut off other opportunities for you. You Mm. wouldn't probably be able to get married. You might not be able to, you know, have other types of careers because of the stigma surrounding that. So we, you know, in our program, we don't, we don't ask girls to share their stories other than, you know, if they want to in a kind of private therapeutic environment, but publicly I found that, you know, since it's going to cut off opportunities for them and they're very young and they might not even realize that yet. Um, that, you know, how, how self-limiting that would be. Um, we, we don't do it. And instead, you know, really focus on them, um, being able to reframe that narrative privately and in, in their counseling situation. And also in, in the sense that they're reframing it publicly, it's through, you know, healing activities, be building a new future, mm-hmm. creative, you know, therapeutic arts, um, having, you know, having work that, that sustains them and allows them to have a different kind of life. But then in terms of talking about what's happening, we try to um, really, really, really protect their privacy. And, and I tell the stories, but, you know, changing some details and making sure it's yeah. um, someone who's comfortable with that being shared, even with the changed name. Which honestly, I would, I, you know, to some degree, I, I would question the validity of that. The more you talk about something, the more you heal from it. You know, like I, I think of, um, I was in a car accident like five years ago. And yeah, I mean, it's, I guess it's good to be able to talk about it at first, but really like, do you want like the, when you talk about a story of something that happened to you, you have to relive it. And it's just like, uh, it's never going to be pleasant. And so, you know, it's better to focus kind of on pleasant things and things you can do something about. Right. It can be so re-traumatizing, right. To go over and over and over it. 
Um, you know, I think you, you have a risk of re victimization and like, if the reason you're going over it is because you really need to keep processing it, that's one thing. But if the reason you're, you're going over it is because, you know, I'm trying to raise money from your story. No, not going to do that. We're very much against <laughs> that. And I think, um, you also don't want to become your story, right? Like you were in this car accident, but you're not a car accident victim. You're Chad. It's like, it's something that happened to Chad. It's not Chad. And we don't want to be that way about our girls. Like you, we even changed our name and we used to be called made by survivors. And we thought that uh -huh. was an empowering name because it's not victim. But finally, after some years, the, it's, the girls it's told still us, a really it's strong still, connection to the past. Right. It's still too strong of a connection. They're like, we don't want the worst thing about us to be the first thing you know about us. So that's why we chose her future. You know, like nice. it's about her future. So and it, it really um, is a big difference that. in focus. It really is. And, uh, you know, and, and the learning for us too. But yeah, you don't want to, you don't want to stay stuck in your story. You don't want that to be who you are. And I think that's why, you know, a lot of times in, here in America, we're changing our language. Like, rather than a handicapped person, a person with disabilities. And I think it's the same with this, like rather than a survivor, it's like a person, you know, who has overcome a tremendous difficulty or just a woman, you know, a student, an artist, a mother. Yeah. So what, what are a couple of the other things you found are really important and, and helpful for them to be able to heal and to, to you know, to move into to being healthy and, and having a happy life? I think community is huge. Um, and I think mm -hmm. that's something that we also can learn from here in the United States. I think in, sure. in India and Nepal, you know, when people are rescued in many, many cases, they can't go home for a variety of reasons. And so they are in a rescue shelter for a while. Uh -huh. And that actually is, is, a, is a wonderful thing because they're surrounded by other people who've experienced the same thing or worse. And so there's, you know, not that sense of isolation. You see people who've been through it, who are an example of how you can move through it. And, you know, it, you know, you can incorporate it, you can integrate it into your life and, and, and move beyond that trauma. So that is mm -hmm. very powerful, that sisterhood. And we try to um, continually recreate that. And even after they leave the shelter, if they're in a, an education program or an employment program, that, you know, they continue to have that supportive community. I think that's absolutely huge. And I think it's very, very hard to be sent back home on your own and try to recover from something like that. Yeah. And that's, that is some, definitely something that, you know, in the U.S. we could learn from because we're a very, you know, almost like a cowboy culture. We're very like, do it on your own, be independent, like you pull yourself up by the bootstraps. But uh, that element of community is really important to, to being healthy. I think it really is. And I think like, you know, we, we, for, you know, reasons of civil liberties, you know, tend to not have, you know, long-term shelter stays or it's certainly um, people aren't required to have something like that, even you know, even sometimes when it's minor children, it's in India, it's like a required thing. It's part of the legal process of, you know, after that happens. And there is that huge advantage to that of just being there and being like, okay, I'm here. What can I learn and grow while I'm here? Get counseling, get vocational training, get education rather than being like set home and you're like, you figure this out. Yeah. That's like, that's a, you no, know, who could do that? That'd be so, so hard. Um, yeah. So sisterhood and, and, and brotherhood and um, community is a huge part of it. And then the other part of it, is creativity. You know, we, we have a lot of um, programs around therapeutic arts and even our vocational training programs often incorporate that. And I think getting creative, you know, be, being artistic allows, it does keep you in the present moment uh -huh. rather than dwelling on these terrible things that have happened or like, oh my God, what are we going to do next week? You know, right now I'm making this piece of jewelry or right now I'm, you know, creating this piece of art. I think that that has been really an important tool for us That's interesting. Um, as well. So even, you know, even within, uh, you know, doing these activities that yes, will help them earn money there. It's important to have a sort of an expressive element in it where it can be enjoyable and, uh, you know, creative so that it's, it's more than just a job. Is that, would that be fairly accurate? That's exactly it. And I think also, especially when there's been tremendous trauma, like, you know, sexual trauma comes through your body, right? It's not a, mm -hmm. not something you got from talking. Right. So verbally expressing it or talking about it therapeutically is a piece of your healing. But if it's come through your body, some uh -huh. of it has to be healed in more a more kinetic way. You know, whether yeah. that's painting or, or dancing or make, hammering, using power tools, whatever it is. <laughs> hammering metal. I feel like yeah, hammering metal, you know, there is a piece of that that's any trauma that comes through the body. Some of it has to be released through physical activities and creative activities so that we do try to incorporate them in everything 
Like even, you know, in the red light area, we do a lot of school sponsorship and education programs. Um, but we, we always try to incorporate an artistic element in that because some people don't even have, especially children, but adults too, don't even have words for what's happened. Because yeah. when the trauma occurred, it was so horrible that it cut out words. Like you don't, don't have words to express it. There's, it's hard to talk about. You may not even kind of remember some of it, but your body remembers. And through you know, creative activities and physical activities, you, you can work through some of it. Do, do most of these girls, um, well, actually I should ask, is it, is it all girls or are there, you know, are there are boys that you help as well? We have about 95% women and girls in our program. Um, but the boys are in the red light area programs. That is the whole family. So, you know, little boys and teenage boys as well. And so do, 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 uh, the majority of them, make a full recovery or are there people you just like they're too you know they were too traumatized you can't help them the surprising majority like say like 95 to 97 percent make a very very strong recovery and i'm sure that you know this is a lifelong process yeah. um after that kind of trauma of you know continually reintegrating it right it's not like i'm done i'm good but you know so not to negate the challenges ahead for them but sure. they are living a productive life reintegrating into society and moving forward on their dreams, whatever those may be, mm-hmm. um, 95 to 97% of the time. And then there are, you know, I mean, there are those cases where it's just caused such a rift, um, in a person's mental health, um, or, or physically just been so devastating that, you know, they're physically not able to recover either. That's, you know, but that is definitely the, the minority case. Gotcha. Which is wonderful. Like that's the most amazing part about this. When I first got into it, I thought, that they are their recovery rates would be much less than that. Yeah, and 90, like a ninety-five percent is really high. It's incredible, and um, and it's not just our organization. Our partners, you know, too. I would, you know, that just just kind of what I'm seeing, and I think that um, there's something wonderful and amazing about it. I'm trying to figure out what it is. I'm writing a book about it, trying to really research and understand like why are these recoveries so high? Is it something cultural? Is it something to do, you know, with what happened before? you know, the, the culture or the life experience of the survivors before the, before the trafficking happened, um, or is it the, or is it the aftercare story and the fact that there's community and there's, you know, these healing opportunities. Do you have, uh, do you have comparisons with the sort of the same sort of situation, like maybe in other cultures or, you know, sort of comparison recovery rates that you're sort of using for that to see if there's, uh, what the differences are? Now, I'm just starting to do that research for the book, but um, in general, I don't have, you know, I don't have any statistics on that, but just, you know, subjectively looking at it, um, it feels to me that in our culture, we're struggling more to recover from even, you know, from all kinds of things yeah. more. Like we don't have as much of a resilience within it. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't know why that is. And I'm trying very much want to understand that better. Huh, that's interesting. So now, now that uh, you know the world, <laughs> the world has like turned on its axis. We've got this pandemic going on. How has that affected your work and what you're doing? Well, basically, we've kind of had to shift all of our attention away from everything else except for feeding people and keeping them from being trafficked. Um, because when you know, obviously, in the a lot of the communities where we're working in. People are living on daily wages. They don't have any savings or any cans of soup in their cupboard. Yeah. And so when they, India went into a very, very strict lockdown, as you may know, yes. which is you know going to end up being six to eight weeks, wow. um, people didn't have a can of soup. Yeah. So, and they, and they didn't know, even so, really have time because the president, the president just said like, okay, we're closing everything now. Now. No, one, two, three, go. You know, it was like really, I know, sudden. And that put people in a very, very precarious position. And especially our families in the red light area, you know, already so marginalized and, you know, trying to keep those kids from being trafficked and following along after what happened to their mothers and that same, you know, cycle. Um, we were very concerned that if families were hungry and desperate, you know, what, what, would you, what are they going to do? You know, anything to keep their kids alive, right? So, yeah. And the government is doing some feeding programs, but it's just not reaching everybody. Uh, understandably, it's like a billion people, and a lot of them are at the margins and maybe not registered. So yeah. we immediately, you know, dove in with our local partners and our local staff with all kinds of zany solutions of getting food to people in different ways. And it was like sort of a different solution in each community because 
you know, if you, if you leave your house, the police run at you with sticks. Like you really can't wow. mess around with this. So we have, you know, but we came up with like different solutions working with different community members and community players in the different areas. Yeah, you said zany solutions. Like what, what is an zany. example? Uh, I, I, I better not, I better not publicly announce that because I feel like some of it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really curious now. <laughs> I'll tell you after, um, you, know, I, you know, just, you know, we just kind of had to really think outside the box and, and just try to, to get food to people, you know, urgently. So while, you know, that is really the focus for the next two months. And so we've had to put, you know, all other programs just on hold. Um, schools are, schools are closed and it, you know, so education programs aren't happening. The red light resource centers are closed. Our, you know, jewelry centers and employment places are closed. The shelter programs, you know, shelters are, are actually right now where people are the safest because they're already sort of in a, yeah. you know, semi-isolated, you know, environment and, and, and they had, and they did have food storage. So those girls, I'm, I'm not worried about them right now. Thankfully, you know, for, for now, those girls are okay. It's those that are out in the community that are, that are more at risk. So we're just really focusing heavily on that. And, you know, I think for nonprofits, all nonprofits, it's going to be a challenging year because so many people have lost their savings, lost their jobs. Yeah. Um, so just, you know, tightening our belts and, and kind of like, preparing for, you know, could be a lean year um, and, um, you know, just live to fight another day. But thankfully we've been able to uh, figure out ways that the girls that are in our programs are being fed and are not in imminent risk. Gotcha. And so, uh, you know, before you sort of with taking out the pandemic, what, well, were there actually any like challenges you were trying to overcome at the moment outside of that, as far as like moving things to the next level or or moving your you know the organization forward? We were feeling like um, very like <laughs> we we had outgrown our spaces um, uh-huh. that we have at Calcutta and um, like kind of like bursting at the seams space wise. So we yeah. were you how, know, how many we how many were, girls are you working with or how many people? Over there, like we work at about we were at about seven hundred and fifty people a year. Wow! Um, in the various programs and projects in Nepal and India, mm-hmm. um, and we do some of that, you know, working and putting in programs at, at a partner's location, and some of that in our own locations. It's for our own locations, we were really were feeling like we're busting out of the seams. You know, we've gotta gotta find a way to get some more space so that we can continue to grow grow these programs and meet the needs of the girls that we're serving. So we, you know, we had just started working on that. We rented this kind of like medieval ass room and (laughs) you know, start by starting, as I said, as my motto, we were just sort of starting to get that going. And, um, and then the other issue is, um, just our local team does so much. Um, it's not a large team and we're feeling like, okay, we, we also need to grow the team a little bit so that people aren't, you know, pulling their hair out and being completely stressed out. We're just kind of looking at some of those issues. It's like, you know, yeah. in order to continue meeting the needs and better meet the needs, maybe we need to work a little bit on these infrastructure issues. Absolutely. And so what is what is your like long-term vision for for what you want this to go? Do you have like a dream of like 10 years from now or even 20 years from now, like how you picture things having evolved? Well, one big piece of it is that the I would like the organization more and more to be in the hands of the girls and women who come up through it, yeah. Um, you know, for that leadership to to come from them and for them to continue to pay it forward, which they all really, really want to do, is so like create more opportunities for that. Um, in terms of the vocational training, I'm really seeing a trend. A lot of young people, young women, are wanting to look for jobs um, in around technology or business skills. Um, like, I guess like young people everywhere, you know, people are very interested in, in internet and phones. And, mm-hmm. and, and so while I think that artisan crafts and professions are still going to have their, the people that want to do them, I think a lot of younger people also really interested in, in jobs that involve in some way using, using technology. So we really want to respond to that. We want to be very, it's very important to us to listen to girls and hear what they're saying and respond. So we're looking, we're looking to expand our employment programs in into more things that involve at least at some level technology. So, you know, whether it's data entry, whether it's graphic design, you know, we're looking at all different kinds of solutions. Yeah. Programming that allows that them to like learn those business skills, you know, production management and kind of join us in the 21st century. I think we're very excited about that. Yeah. sounds amazing. Uh, Okay. Well, do you have any other, I don't know, is there, is there any other things you'd want to talk about or, or say is involving any of this? 
Well, first of all, I'd like to say thank you so much for having me and giving me the opportunity to share. No, thank you for telling me your story. This is really like you do, you do the most amazing work. I think it's fantastic. Thank you so much. And I just really want to say to everyone who's feels called or compelled to get involved in whatever issue, you know, of the day that really speaks to you to just start by starting, you know, get in there, start on the path. And as you do, the way will be lit up for you and what you can do next. And, you know, it's, I think we can all do incredible things for each other. And, um, and it's just, you know, don't wait around for the perfect moment or knowing every answer you can't and, but, but get in there and, and get busy. And I think you'll be amazed at what you can do and the support that'll come in around you and the joy it'll bring into your life. If you'd like to support Sarah Simmons in the work she's doing to save young girls from sex slavery, go to herfuturecoalition.org. That's herfuturecoalition.org. Remember that any time, money, or resources you can contribute will make a huge difference in the life of a child. Next time on Intriguing Interviews, we'll speak with Barack Obama, the latest really good president of the United States. Oh, wait, he canceled. But that's okay, because we'll interview the legendary Chuck Norris, actor and karate master. Hmm, no, damn, he never agreed to do it. Let's see who's next. Ah, we'll interview my ex-girlfriend. Oh dear. Uh, you shouldn't listen next time. It's gonna be awkward. Go visit herfuturecoalition.org instead. That's better. Do that.